Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. And indeed, this is an odd passage for this week. Um, I was looking up uh, different notes and commentaries and sermons, and I think I found like four sermons on like the history of the earth of like this passage. Not really, there, there's more, but this is an odd passage, right? It seems like what in the world am I going to draw from this? And on the onset, I want to tell you that that's good news because you may feel like in your own life, like, God, what are you doing here? I feel like this is mundane. This feels every ordinary day. What are you doing in the midst of this? And tucked into this insignificant, unfamiliar story is actually a profound move of God. So we're going to unpack that in a moment, but I want to catch us up if maybe we're a guest here today. Uh, as Emily mentioned, we study books of the Bible. We go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And for the past multiple weeks, uh, we've been journeying alongside a couple, married couple, Abraham and Sarah, in the book of Genesis. And we started with them in Genesis chapter 12. And the passage we just read is 62 years later. We've been with this couple for a long time. It's not been our 62 years, their 62 years, but we've been with them for a while. All the way until this moment of mourning, moment of mourning in Genesis 23. And as you just read, the moment of mourning is really about Sarah because our journey with Sarah now comes to an end today at her passing at the old but blessed year of 127 years old. Now, in today's chapter, guys, we're gonna see how Abraham mourns and weeps at the loss of his wife, Sarah. And I could not imagine how he feels. The grief in his heart, the weightiness of not having this woman he's traveled with decades of life with. Well, then we're going to also see him negotiate the terms of her burial plot. And then he's going to end up buying this plot that ends up being a cave in the hills of Hebron. Now, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I just wanted to skip this chapter because next week's a lot more exciting. It's a love story between Isaac and Rebecca. Ooh, like I, I like that a lot better. It's like how they met and how they wooed each other and what God did to bring them together. Like everyone loves that. This is a death story. Like, and just like we celebrated last week, a resurrection, like Sarah has not been resurrected. Like, I just wanted to skip this week. Like, it's really odd. It's not an exciting story. It's not a major story. Guys, it only talks about Sarah like two times at the beginning of this passage and two times at the end. And then everything in between, the meat of this passage, 16 verses, is a land negotiation. Now, if there's one way to like not grow a church, you preach on land negotiations, right? You like bring a realtor in, you talk about the property cost of land. Like that's what we're talking about today. And so I'm like, God, how in the world am I going to get anything out of this story? And I'm like squeezing it, not physically squeezing the Bible. You get what I'm saying. Like, what is coming from this? And as I was thinking about that, like, how often do we feel like that with our own life, honestly? Like, God, what are you doing here? My life seems so boring, so mundane. I don't see you working. And there's tragedy around me. There might be loss that you have faced. And you're like, God, what are you doing here? And that's exactly how I felt coming at this passage, like, God, what are you doing here? Like, maybe, maybe if Avengers Endgame is true and we figure out time travel, 
and I go back and can figure out some ancient Near Eastern land negotiations, that'll be helpful. But as a whole, I'm like, God, what, what's the point of this passage here? But if you're a Christian for a while, you know 2 Timothy 3.16 is true. All scripture is profitable. All of it's useful by God. Some of it is more profitable, arguably, but all scripture is profitable. So God, what's the point of today's passage? It seems like the story could have just gone, guys, from verse 1 and 2, and then could have skipped all the way down to verse 19 and 20, talking about Sarah's death and then Sarah's burial. We could have skipped everything in between. In fact, guys, there is no mention of covenant in this chapter. There's no mention of blessing. There's no mention of promises. God's name is only mentioned one time. One time in verse 6, when the Hittites call Abraham a prince of God, talking about his relationship with God as close and royal and intimate filled with blessing. So what's the point of this passage? Guys, I don't know. Let's just close down in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm just kidding. I'm just, just kidding. I, there is a point, okay? There's a point, okay? Because although this passage, listen, this is key. Although this passage doesn't name a covenant or a blessing or a promise, listen, it has everything to do with God's covenant, God's blessing, and God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. Because listen, don't miss this, okay? When God first spoke to them in Genesis 12, God promised them two things. Just shout it out. What did God promise in Genesis 12? A land and a what? A son. And it's through, listen, it's through Isaac's death, excuse me, through Isaac's birth, through Isaac's birth that God fulfilled the promised son. But now it's through Sarah's death that God fulfilled the promised land, or at least the beginning of it. Because see, when Abraham purchased this plot of land, to bury his wife, he acquired the very first piece of the promised land. The land that God had promised him and Sarah 62 years ago that they had been waiting for and hoping in that they could pass along to their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids and the nations could see how God was blessing them and the nations would know who God is, that a Messiah, Jesus, would come through their line one day. They had been waiting It's through Isaac's birth that God fulfilled the son, but it's through Sarah's death that fulfilled the land. So God it's through this obscure passage that we see the sovereignty of God to fulfill yet again another promise to them. So if you're taking notes, guys, here's the main point, the main idea of this entire passage. God can use the darkest of your days like a vehicle to bring you the brightest of his ways. I know that rhymes, it may seem cheesy, but that that encapsulates what the point of this is. It's like a nursery rhyme. I was explaining this to my kids. I'm like, this is the best way I can know to explain this well. If you got a better one, just text me later and I'll edit my notes, right? But here's the main idea. God can use your darkest of days like a vehicle to bring you to his purposes. And that's what we see with Abraham. And that's what we're learning with his life. It's through the death of his beloved wife, Sarah. That in his darkest of days, God brought about the brightest of promises and purposes for Abraham. It's the beginning of the promised land. It's the beginning of what God promised them 62 years ago. And guys, as I was thinking this past week, I just want to be honest. I think that this is arguably the most challenging days that our church individually has been through. Some of you, I know you well and spend time with you in 
Maybe you've been with our church for five years, and I know we only planted three years ago, but some of you moved earlier. And for some of you individually, this has been the darkest season of days in your life. Guys, some of us have gone through incredibly challenging mental health crisis. Some of us right now are going through incredibly painful and hard physical bodily challenges. You've gone to the ER, you sent your kids to the ER, you're navigating pain in your body. Some of us are in the hardest seasons in our marriage where this has been a difficult past few months for you, more strife and confusion hurt than you've ever felt. Some of you are navigating depression and anxiety and your stress at work is at an all-time high. And guys, I've been a pastor for about 11, 12 years now, and I think this is arguably one of the darkest of seasons that I've seen individuals go through in our church. We've seen people lose loved ones and losing life. So much hardship. And guys, it's in this passage that I'm hoping that you can see that in your darkest of days, whatever's happening, that God's going to use that dark day as a vehicle, a vehicle bringing you somewhere. He's not going to leave you there. He's not going to let it overtake you. He's going to use that darkness as a vehicle to bring you somewhere. And that's exactly what we see happen with Abraham and his life. And so if you're in that place, guys, I want you to hold on. And I want you to feel at home with Abraham today. When he's in a foreign land, we're going to learn in a minute that he's been living in a tent for like six decades. He's away from his hometown. He had a another woman that he was married to, which he should not have been, and that went awry. And Abraham is just mourning and grieving at the loss of his beloved wife. Guys, I love my wife. We've been married for 10 years. We just are celebrating our anniversary, and I'm so grateful for her. I could not imagine losing my wife and had to navigate my calling without her, her calling without me. And that's what Abraham has to do. God's given him the son, and now he's trying to give him this land and he feels like he's in this dark spot. And if you're in that place, guys, grab hold of this passage. It may feel like, what are you doing here, God? It feels so mundane. I don't understand. This is so dumb, a land negotiation. But I want you to see what God's going to do in Abraham's life. So hang on and trust him. He's doing something. So guys, let's read through this passage together. And I want to pull out a few applications for you to kind of put in your back pocket and, and take home with you this afternoon. Here's the first thing I want you to take home. Because in your darkest of days that you face, listen, guys, it is good and right to mourn. But I want you to take the time to do it with hope. Guys, when you're facing the darkest moments of your life, I want you to take the time. It's good and right to mourn. But I want you to do it with hope. Verse 1 says this, Sarah lived 127 years. She lives a long life, a blessed life. This is a wonderful amount of years that she's had. It says, these are the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in the land of Hebron. That's the future promised land, the land of Canaan. You're going to see the land of Canaan. That phrase many times, the author's trying to get you to see. This is about the promised land. This is about the promised hope that God told them would happen and that God will fulfill it. You see that over and over again. And then it says that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. He was mourning and weeping. Guys, the first thing I want you to see here is I want you to take the time, guys, to process the hurt of what you lose in life. 
What we see here is a beautiful moment where Abraham is taking the time to process the hurt of what he lost. Guys, Abraham loved Sarah. And he went into her tent in order to mourn and to weep for her. He didn't just keep pressing through, saying, look at what I've got on my job schedule this week. I've got this project, or I just got to get over this moment. He takes time, and he goes to her tent. He's processing what he lost. Guys, this is the very first funeral we see in the entire Bible. In fact, this is the very first time where we see the Bible slow down on a woman's life and gives honor with these two verses about her life and how long she lived and how loved she was. And what we see in this is a good model to take time when we feel lost to mourn and to weep rather than just suppress and move on. There's so many of us guys, we deal with hardships. We just numb ourselves with Netflix or social media or we run from conflict and we don't actually take time to process the hurt, the pain we feel. We suppress it and we move on. Abraham gives us a good model. When you're hurting, guys, take the time. Maybe take a day off of work. Reach out for help. Pray and reflect. That's what we see Abraham doing. It's a good practice. Guys, listen, grieving is such an incredibly important act. Listen, if you do not grieve, you cannot heal. If you do not grieve the loss you have, you cannot heal. It will follow you throughout your life. You never, by the way, you never get over grief. You never get over it. You just walk stronger through it. And that's what we see with Abraham. And church, that's what I want you to see. If you're facing loss today, if you're facing the darkest season of your life, you need to take the time to slow down, to mourn, to grieve, Find a playlist of songs that help you process what's going on. Take time to pray, journal out what's going on, how you feel, where you're angry, where you're hurting, where you're maybe bitter. Write that out and be honest. Take time to reflect. Don't don't numb yourself. Engage yourself with what's going on. Guys, if you do not grieve, you cannot be emotionally well unless you process the loss. That's the first thing we see. And in fact, we see Jesus do this many times through scripture. We see Jesus arguably at multiple funerals. We see him at funerals of women who were older. We see him at funerals of children. We see him at Lazarus's funeral. And what does he do there? Does he say, chip chop, come on. I got the resurrection power. Everybody stop crying. We got to move on. We got a kingdom to advance. He does that later. Indeed, Andrew, he does. But what does he do first? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus what? Jesus wept. He takes time. He pauses. He reflects. He feels the humanity, the brokenness of what sin has caused. And then number two, what we must do is what Jesus do. We turn to the hope of what heaven offers. That's the second thing. Once you take the time to process the hope of what heaven has to offer. So yes, we pause, we reflect, we mourn, we grieve. We must do that. But in that place, we also must process the hope of what's coming for you, Christian. Paul says it well in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. You could step back for a moment and say, I don't want you to be uninformed about any sort of death, relational death, career death, 
emotional health, death. I don't want you to be uninformed about any of that. Why? He says, so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who may have no hope. But here's our hope, verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and then rose again above that death. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him one day so that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Guys, we shared last week, the hope of Easter really is that you're not just going to die, Christian, and stay dead. You're not gonna be left in your depression, in your anxiety, in your marital strife. You're not gonna be left in the brokenness of your body. One day, God will take your body, bring you on to glory, and you'll be in heaven for eternity. And so when you're in the worst season of your life, when darkness is surrounding you, I want you to remember that you will not be stuck here forever. God will one day take every cloud of darkness and one day he will escape every cloud that's around you and bring you into his presence away from every hardship, every trauma, every situation of difficulty you've ever faced. Because sometimes in our worst moments, we have a hard time lifting up our head to see what's actually in front of us. I'm not trying to diminish or minimize any sort of hardship. I'm trying to maximize the hope that you have. You're not going to be left in the hardship that you are going to be in forever. And that's what we see the hope of Easter. That's what we see the hope of Abraham. We've got to take the time to process the hope that we have. And then third in this point, guys, I want us to take the time to process the help, the help that you may need in your pain. Guys, when Abraham is in this tent, he's mourning and he's grieving. I'm sure he's contemplating a hope of a future resurrection. Because remember, we learned about Isaac. We learned that he thought that if maybe if Isaac was sacrificed, that God even had the power to raise him again. And maybe that Abraham's hoping, God, would you one day, would you bring Sarah to glory and could I be with her? And in this moment, though, we learn that he begins to process some help that he needs. He needs to learn, where do I put my wife's body? Where do I bury her? And because, listen, because he emotionally processed death well, he grieved it well, he took the time. When he got up out of the tent, he immediately went for help. He went to the land of the Hittites and said, guys, I need a burial plot. I need some land for my beloved wife, a place where I can remember her and come back and celebrate. I need a memorial. Guys, he went and got the help that he needed in the pain. And church, sometimes you just take your own pain and you put it on your own back. And you live days and weeks and months without telling anybody what you face. And what we're learning in this passage is to grieve well in their darkest days, you've got to take the time to process the help that you need. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's some sort of biblical counseling or professional counseling. Maybe it's a walk with a friend around a park. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's space away from community group for a week or two to, to rest. Maybe it's asking someone to create a meal train for you. Do you know what I'm saying? I want you guys to take the time to process the help that you need. This is what Abraham did. And I want you to do the same thing, church. Take the time. Ask the help. In your darkest of days, we want to help you grieve and mourn well. Does that make sense? We want to do this well as Christians. This is a hard life. There's so much brokenness. And we want to walk through it together with all the help and love you need. Amen? Number two. Number two, let Abraham's last day with Sarah inform you how to live your everyday with others. 
Let that sink in just for a moment, okay? Let Abraham's last day with Sarah inform how you live every day with others. Guys, I'm sure when Abraham was weeping over Sarah's body, guys, he was filled with so much grief and reflection. I'm sure he was both wishing that he had more time, but also wishing that he had wasted less time. I'm sure he was wishing that he had spent more time loving her, listening her, looking at her eyes, considering her needs, caring for her, investing time into her. I'm sure he also wished that he spent less time fighting with her and bickering with her and complaining about the little things, the toothpaste, the toilet paper, where they left their clothes in the tent. Why did Abraham or Sarah keep forgetting to pick up Isaac from preschool? Like, right, all of these things. Why do you not listen to me, Abraham? Why do you not listen to me, Sarah? Why are you not meeting my needs? I'm sure he wished he had spent less time doing that. Guys, life is so incredibly short. Arguably, I am one-third of the way complete with my life if I live up to 90 Life is so short, I've arguably got two-thirds left. And life was so short for Abraham and Sarah, and they even lived into their hundreds. Abraham was not like, whew, good, I'm, girl, you were old. I'm, I'm glad you're dead. He wanted more time. And arguably, he got the most time, 127 years of her life. Guys, think about this for a moment. Think about every significant relationship that you have with someone in your life. Pull them up in your brain. Is it a friend, spouse, family member? Pull them up in your brain. Every significant relationship, pull them up. If they're significant in your life, here's what's going to happen. Either you are going to end up at their funeral or they're going to end up at yours. And in those moments, at that funeral, on that day, I want the mourning and grieving to be more about how you wish you had more time together with that person and less about not having wasted the time that you did have together. Guys, the biggest thing we do in relationships is we harbor bitterness. We harbor bitterness, and the seconds we do that add up to minutes and hours and days and weeks, and you can never get those seconds and minutes back. You can't ever go backwards. And we don't know how many seconds we have left. Make every second count. And when you don't, be quick to repent, guys. Be quick to forgive one another. Be quick to talk it out. Be quick to fight for each other and not against one another. Spend more time face-to-face and less time face-to-phone. Slow down. Be intentional. Pursue the hearts of your loved ones and not just the pursuits of your own hearts. Guys, one of the greatest movies that jacks me up every time I want, watch it is The Greatest Showman. Every time I cry watching that movie and you're like, bro, why are you crying watching The Greatest Showman, bro? You, you okay? I'm not okay, right? I'm not okay. Every time I watch that movie and Hugh Jackman, the lead character, I see myself. The dude has two idols. It's success and significance. In all his life, he is going after those two idols. And what, what, through the course of the movie, you watch him wreck his family, wreck his marriage, lose time with his children, because he's so adamant about being someone and doing something important. 
Because in the first scenes, you watch how he had nothing and he was bullied and his dad didn't have a lot and he got slapped as a kid and this sort of moment where his dad brings him to work and he's like, I want to be significant. I don't want to be treated like this in the rest of his life. He's like, I'll do anything to become significant and successful. And he sacrifices so much. Every time I watch that movie, which is a lot, which is a lot, I'm like, God, can you please reorient my heart? Can you please reorient my heart? Help me not to miss those moments with my daughters. When they say, Daddy, will you play with me? Will you spend time with me? Daddy, will you hold me? When one of you reaches out and says, hey, can you grab a meal? Can you grab coffee? Would I put down whatever important administrative thing I think I have to do? And would I do that? Would the pursuit of other people's hearts be my desire, not the pursuit of my own hearts? Guys, let Sarah's falling asleep in death be your wake-up call in life. We don't have many more moments. This life is going to go by so fast. When we were in elementary school, we were like, I can't wait to grow up. And then we're growing up, we're like, why did I ever want to grow up? This is terrible. Guys, it's going to go faster than you think. Let Abraham's last day with Sarah inform how you live every day with others. Church, let me ask you, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to have a phone call with? What do you need to change in your priorities and your schedule? What do you need to do differently in your relationships so that we prioritize and steward the relationships that God has given us well? Guys, don't waste your life. Don't waste your time. Number three. Guys, in your darkest of days, this is another cheesy one-liner for you. You're welcome. How to do something to brighten up the message. So here's some cheese. In your darkest of days, guys, you will be tempted to compromise. You'll be tempted to compromise when you can't see clearly, you're struggling. And so in that moment, Paul gives us this phraseology from Philippians 3 about keeping your eyes on the prize. So don't compromise, keep your eyes on the prize. There's your nursery rhyme for today, you're welcome. Paul gives us this analogy of, hey, we're running this race. And if you know tomorrow is what? Marathon Monday. I don't know if many of you are running in that. One of our workers, he's in our co kids today, is Bobby G, he's running the Boston Marathon. Oh, we can celebrate that. Absolutely, we can celebrate that. Yeah, we love running. Yeah, absolutely, we can celebrate that. Bobby, we wish you well on that. And what's interesting is that when Bobby and I were talking about uh, a marathon he ran, I think two years ago, Bobby got like, I don't know, some ridiculous place, like 101st out of like a trillion people that run this race. I don't know how many people run it. And Bobby talks about this last like mile 20 and beyond. And Bobby says, bro, I'm like, what's it like when you're like, to the end, you've been running 20 miles. You're running from like way out in like California. You're like finding your way to Boston. Like when you're running all that way, like what's it, what's it feel like? He's like, bro, like you start seeing tunnel vision. You start seeing like darkness and you can't really focus on really anything. Your, your mind's not clear and you're just keeping one foot in front of the other and you just can't give in. You can't give up. You got to keep moving forward. And I was thinking about that type of race is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter three. Those Christians were running this race this life, this goal of following Christ and his commands. That's the goal of what we're doing. And when we're running, we're gonna be tempted to compromise, to give up, to give in. And what Bobby loves about running this race, he'll say, is that he loves the challenge of it, to push himself in the darkest of moments, to find strength and to keep moving through. That's what we're gonna see with Abraham. In his darkest of moments, he's gonna feel tempted in a moment to compromise, to give up on what he feels that God's calling him to do but he keeps his eyes focused on this promised land, this calling and promise of God, and he doesn't compromise. Let me show you what I mean, verse three. 
So Abraham rose up from being in Sarah's tent before his dead. And he said to the Hittites, he says, guys, I'm a sojourner and I'm a foreigner among you. I'm not from here. But guys, I'm gonna ask you, can you give me property that's among you, among your people, among your land for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight? Now, again, he's not saying that he doesn't wanna be near the grave of his wife. He's saying that I, I, I don't wanna have her body laying in this tent. I wanna honor her and respect her. I need a place for her. Guys, Abraham's description of himself in this verse is sojourner and foreigner. And here that emphasizes his immigrant status in the land of the Hittites. Even after 62 years of this nomadic life in Canaan, Abraham has no permanent location to call his home. You couldn't send that joker a letter. He has no home address. Dude's living in a tent out in the middle of the desert. Six decades of living in a tent. Now, I like camping just like the next guy does, but six decades of a tent, there's not a chance. There's not a chance I'd make it. It's a whole other level. But I want you to notice the resolve and conviction in his voice. He says, hey guys, I want you to give me a property among you, among your land for a burying place. Now, why is that significant? Because dying during, during that day, you could only kind of bury someone in your homeland. And being an immigrant, you can't just roll up into someone else's court and say, I want some land. Like, that's not how it worked. You had to go through an entire process, like today that many have to go through for visas or green cards. And the process after Sarah's death was for Abraham, if he wanted to get land, he had to travel further into the land of the Hittites, call a meeting in their city gates, and get the town's permission for him to buy land that he desired, oftentimes was met with a rejection from the town. And so Abraham is displaying bold faith here. He gets on some sort of horse or donkey or camel and he goes towards this city. He's like, guys, listen, I'm not from here. And I know it's almost impossible to get land, but God promised me one day that this all land would be a promised land for me and my family and the future Messiah would come through our lineage. With great boldness and clarity, he steps in. He doesn't give up in this moment. He displays bold faith here. He's trusting that God would fulfill his promise to provide the land that he said he would. Now, guys, just step back for a moment here, okay? Step back. This moment is incredibly powerful. Just consider it. Because rather than giving up on the promised land, he could have just gone home, right? He could have just gone back to the land that he had in Genesis 12. He could have just hung his head and said, man, I... We've got this promised son, but I don't know about this promised land. I'm just going to go home now. I don't know how I can take another step without my wife, without my partner in this life. I'm just going to go home. He could have compromised in the race that he was running. He could have given up. And what we're seeing here is that he didn't compromise in his darkest of days. He didn't give up faith. In fact, he doubled down on his faith. Rather than deconstructing his faith... He trusts God to construct his faith and to construct his future. Look at how far Abraham has come in his faith journey. Guys, when things got difficult for him before, what did he do? He did crazy junk. He got married, people he should have been married to on top of his other wife. Like he had all kinds of children and lied and even gave over his own wife to another man because he was afraid that man would hurt his own life, so he sacrificed his wife. Done terrible things, but in this moment... We see him grow up in his faith. He doesn't compromise his faith in this moment. He's, he's convinced. He has a conviction about him. 
So now we see, yes, guys, he could have given up. He could have gone back to his hometown, but he has the faith not to. He decides to bury his wife in the place that God called them to and not the place where God called them from. So he begins with what we learn is this three-phase negotiation of faith where he hopes to purchase this burial land for his wife in the land that God had promised to them so long ago, a negotiation that is filled with his conviction and not with compromise. Let me show you what I mean here, verse five. So the Hittites at this court setting, the whole town's gathered, they're at the city gates and Abraham said, hey guys, can I get some land? The Hittites all kind of respond to Abraham's request and they say, hey, hear us, my Lord. They're kind of respecting him back. Hear us, my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, guys, the negotiation seems to be off to a pretty good start, right? They say, hey, Abraham, we know who you are. You're blessed by God. You have a good reputation with our people. And you can bury your wife here. In fact, you can pick whatever tomb site that you want. None of us are going to withhold it from you. But Abraham, listen, isn't interested in loaning a tomb. Because that's what's offered. Hey, yeah, pick a tomb wherever you want. He's not interested in loaning a tomb. He's interested in owning one. He wants to buy one to actually have a piece of the promised land to bury his wife in. So here comes phase two, verse seven. So Abraham rose and he bowed down to the Hittites, the people of the land. He's showing great honor and respect here. Verse eight, and he said to them, hey guys, if you're willing that I should buy, bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me this guy named Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give you, or he may give me this cave in Mechpelah, which he owns. Hey guys, I know where it's at. It's at the end of his field. I want to pay the full price for this and let him give it to me in your presence as a contract so that I can bury my wife here. Guys, I love this. Abraham is on Zillow every day. Dude scattered out the exact property he wanted. He went on Red Tree, whatever site. He inspected the property himself. He went to the bank. He's got enough cash and he's ready to pay in full. Guys, Abraham is clear on what he wants. And he is prayerful that God will give it to him. And he refuses to compromise. I'm not going to take a loan. I want to own this. He goes into phase three here, verse 10. So Ephron was sitting there among the Hittites. And Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in this crowd. He's like, hey, yeah, dude, I hear you. You want my property? And verse 11, he says, no, my Lord. Ephron responds, no, hear me. I'm going to give you the field. And I'm going to give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of my sons and my people, I'll give it to you, bury your dead. Do you see what's happening here? They keep trying to say, I want to give it to you as a gift. He's like, mm, I don't want a gift because gifts have strings sometimes. And I want to own this and not be loaned it. Because he knows that right now, Ephraim will give it to him. But what about in five years? Will Ephraim come back and say, hey, remember how I gave you that loan? You need to do some stuff for me. Or maybe what if Ephraim wants it back in five years? What if Ephraim dies? Ephron dies and maybe his sons want this property back. And then Abraham's going to have no legal proof of it. There's no documentation if he doesn't own it. So he keeps his conviction. He doesn't compromise in the darkest of days, right? Abraham is so clear-headed about it. He doesn't compromise his calling to this promised land. He trusts God's word, guys. He doesn't refuse. He doesn't refuse what God has to say to him. He refuses to compromise. He won't settle for less than God's will made known through God's word. And church, let me ask you the question. Could the same be true about you? 
do you trust God's word and refuse to compromise? Because that's where Abraham finds himself. Here's what I'll offer you, and the world offers you all kinds of stuff. You get on dating apps, and there's all kinds of things offered to you. There's all kinds of things that we can get involved in. The world is saying, this is where you find pleasure. Come over here. This is where you find comfort. It's in your bank account. Come and find prestige here in Boston. We'll give you a PhD and a master's degree, but you got to work to the bones and almost kill all your relationships to get it. Come, I got a gift for you. And Abraham says, no, I'm not going to compromise. Christian, where can you be like Abraham here and not compromise on what God is calling for you to obey? Where have you found yourself compromising God's word and God's will? Has it been in the way you speak about someone? Is it about the way you spend your money? Is it about how you spend your time in private with your computer or with your phone? Is it how you're speaking to or about your spouse or roommate? Are you compromising God's word and will in the darkest days of your life? Verse 12, then Abraham bowed down before the people. Again, he's showing honor here. And he said, Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you'll hear me, I give the price of the field. Please accept it from me that I may bury my dead. Then Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of this land is gonna be worth 400 shekels. He just like highballs them right here. You Fine, you want this land, bro? You want this land? 400 shekels of silver. Is that what's between you and me? Fine, here it is. Bury your dead. Ephraim highballs him here, gets a little sassy, gets a little upset with him. 400 shekels of silver is mega expensive. So much money. Guys, to put it in perspective real quick, a thousand years later, the land of Jerusalem, the land for the temple was bought for how much? 50 shekels. Jeremiah buys a field for 17 shekels. 400 shekels of silver is a lot of money. And that's after a thousand years of inflation. It's a ton of money. Verse 16, then Abraham listened to Ephraim. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that had been named and all in front of all the people. This is the moment that they're putting the contract out. They're bringing in the lawyers, they're bringing in the counters and they're counting up 400 shekels of silver according to the ways that they, that they weighed the current among the merchants. Guys, just a bonus point for you, not, not really on the screens. But what we see here, guys, is that following God's will will always cost you. It will always cost you, but it will always be worth it. Guys, following God's will is always going to feel like it's 400 shekels off of your paycheck. Guys, so many of you, it is so hard to live in this city financially. It's the number two most expensive city. We just beat San Francisco and we don't want to beat San Francisco. (laughs) Next is New York City and we do not want to beat them. In sports, we do, but we don't want to beat them with rent cost. Guys, it is a hard cost to live in Boston. And as much as we love this city, we know that less than 3% of the city knows Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so many of you have said, I'm going to make Boston home. I'm going to count the cost. Whatever my 400 shekels of silver, I'm going to put it in. I'm going to give my all to follow God's will. I want people to know him. I want to invest in my community. I want my neighbors to know Jesus. Guys, the cost for living and staying in Boston is high. Many of you in this church, you could be at a better church. You could be at a bigger church. You could have more friends that are your age. You could have more kids that are your own kid's age. And I know that you've sacrificed. It will always cost you to follow God's will, but it will always be worth it. It's going to cost you your time, guys. It's going to cost you your money, your resources. Guys, I know that you could arguably even get paid in 
a different city better. You could have more land. You could own a house. A house is something that you can like buy yourself and you could like live in it without other people sharing a unit. It's what's called a house. Don't know if you guys are familiar with that. We don't have those here. Just kidding. Kind of. But we see here that God's will, guys, will always cost you, but it will always be worth it. And Abraham, I don't know what he sold. I don't know what he had, but he gave 400 shekels of silver. That's a big cost. But he was buying something for the future. This small plot of land would end up being the first ownership of the promised land. And then it would grow and grow and grow and grow. And then through that land, eventually would come the promised Messiah. Guys, what are you willing to give up for the gospel? What are you willing to give up to make sure that other people could know Jesus so that they could know the promised land of heaven? Guys, it's going to cost you, but it will always be worth it. It will always be worth it. And that's what we see in Abraham's story. Last thing, number four. I think it's the last thing. Yep, last thing. In your darkest of days, your devastating setbacks can be turned around into divine setups and God's sovereign hands for his good purposes. In your darkest of days, your devastating setbacks can be turned around into divine setups. So guys, I want you to trust him. I want you to trust him. Verse 17. So the field of Ephraim in Mechpelah, which was to the east of Memory, which is where they've been living, the field with the cave that is in it and all the trees that are around the field, the whole area was made over to Abraham. This is a legal contract. It's made over. They signed the paperwork. It's his possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went at the gate of the city. God fulfilled his promise. 62 years ago, you will inhabit the promised land. And he's like, bro, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't even got kids. I I don't got a lot of money. Like, I don't know how this is going to happen. How am I going to possess all of this? God made it happen for him. And after this, it's a sad moment, verse 19. Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in that cave of the field of Mechpelah, east of Mamre. That's Hebron. It seems to me that this is a private funeral. We see later when Abraham dies, Ishmael shows back up. There's other people at Abraham's funeral, but this is a private moment between him and his wife. And I can just imagine, just for me, I would just weep because both of them heard the promise in Genesis 12, but Sarah didn't get to see the fulfillment of it. And as he lays his wife down, he's like, God, you are so faithful. Through this woman, you brought Isaac. And then through this woman, you're bringing the promised land. Do you see how significant Sarah's story is? It's through her life that God brings the promised son and the promised land. But this story doesn't just point us to Sarah, does it? It's through Sarah that this story points us to Jesus. See, the death of Sarah brings Abraham into the promised land. But the death of Jesus brings us into the greater promised land. He brings us into heaven. Amen? If we zoom in on the story, we see that Sarah is a true historical figure but points us to Jesus. It's through her death that they get the promised land. And it's through Jesus' death that we get the promised land of heaven. The trajectory of Sarah's death is actually the trajectory of the future hope. The setback of Sarah's death is the setup for God's purposes and promises. Her and Abraham and her children, her children's children are now going to inherit this land. In fact, Abraham will be buried in the same place. Sarah's in this place. Isaac and Rebekah, Leah will be buried in this place. Even today, our Muslim neighbors, they've built a mosque over this site. And when the resurrection of the dead 
genuinely happens one day, guess what Sarah and Abraham are going to wake up to? They're going to wake up in the resurrection of the promised land. They're going to see the promised land physically on earth and God will make all things new, the new heavens and the new earth, and they'll have this new future hope. Guys, what we're seeing is a divine or a a devastating setback in your life. God can turn it into a, a divine setup. That's what he's doing here with Sarah and Abraham. Guys, if you're in this place like Abraham today, you're in your darkest of moments and you're like, I don't know how my situation, I don't know how my struggle is gonna work out for any good. If you're in that spot, you're like, how Aaron? I get it for Abraham, but what about my life? Like, how is this gonna work out for good? I hate myself, I hate my life, I hate my mental health, I hate what's going on with me right now. What about me? And if you're in that spot, I want you to take a moment and I want you to look to the cross. If God can bring goodness through the death of his perfect God-son Jesus, if he can bring good from that, he can bring good from anything in your life. And I want you to hold on. Maybe it's Saturday for you. Friday is when the death of Jesus happens. Sunday is the resurrection. You feel like you're in Saturday. You're in this waiting. God, when are you going to resurrect? When are you going to bring good for my life? Everything feels like it's dead and gone. If you feel like that, hold on. Sunday's coming. The resurrection is coming. Heaven is coming. God can take your setback and turn it into a setup in his hands. He did that with the death of Sarah. It's a tragedy, but it formed a trajectory of hope. The promised land was given. Guys, any death, any situation, any mental health, any physical health, God can take it and he can turn it. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know why, but he'll do it for your good and his glory. We just have to hang on, we have to wait. And church, let me ask you, do you trust him? Do you trust him to do that? He did it with Jesus. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Sarah. He'll do it with you as well. Every tragedy you face, he'll bring a trajectory of hope. God can take the darkest of days as a vehicle to bring you the brightest of ways. Church, as we step into the next week, the next month, the next year, as our church continues to navigate some of the darkest seasons of our individual lives, would you hold on to this text that in the midst of this land treaty, this weird negotiation, that God meets us there. When things seem like, man, I can't recover from this, that God will do something. God will bring you through. And the hope we have is in heaven one day. Guys, let me take a moment. Let me pray for us.